and welcome to Top Hole, the podcast about Eleanor M. Brent Dyer, the chalet school, and anything vaguely connected to them. I'm Deborah Lofus, and I'm a fan. The usual provisos apply, with respect to pronunciation, spoilers, and bonkersness. Please refer to episode zero. This week, I'm talking about school with bells on. Let's start at the very beginning. And it's not with the school at the chalet. It's not with EBD's life and background. It's not even with EBD's first published book, Jerry Goes to School. No, the very beginning is in fact the 30th chalet school book, The Chalet School and Barbara. This was the very first chalet school book I read, I think. It could have been shocks for the chalet school because that was the other chalet school book on the third year juniors bookshelf, but I don't remember being puzzled by who this Joey person was when I first read shocks, and I always preferred the cover of Barbara. I was quite shallow when it came to picking books at that age, and I think the cover, the maroon snowstorm armada, would have swung it for me. The Chalet School and Barbara is also a very common chalet school book. It was published as a hardback in 1954 and in three different paperback editions in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. So I think it's probably a chalet school book that, in the UK at least, almost everyone who considers themselves a chalet fan and quite a few casual readers will have read. It's also quite a typical chalet, strong on character and location, weak on plot, and it marks the start of a new phase for the chalet school as it transfers to Switzerland, back to the Alps of its origin. I know that the school had already moved to Switzerland with the establishment of the finishing branch at the start of the previous school year, but honestly I don't think that counts. The chalet school in the Oberland is a book about older girls, and it has older girl themes. EBD doesn't return to the finishing branch for a second book, maybe because she wasn't as comfortable writing about these issues. So the chalet school in Barbara is a big deal. It's about the main school moving to Switzerland, and this is its new home. This is one of the things which really appealed to me as an eight-year-old. This school was abroad. I'd never been abroad. It seemed terribly glamorous. The snow, for a start. We almost never got snow in the Thames Valley, but also the trains and the bears and the mountains. I was blown away, if slightly puzzled to find that they didn't all eat muesli for breakfast. But the appeal of Barbara isn't just the location. If it had been, I would have reshelved shocks as soon as I discovered it was only set in Wales, although on an island, that is pretty cool. The other major thing I liked about this book was sharing Barbara's experience as a new girl at this really great school, where the girls were friendly, where working hard during lessons was acceptable, where there was almost no PE or team sports, but they did a lot of walking instead. I definitely wanted to go there. Of course, now, many years later, I know that I would have hated it. There is almost no chance of alone time at the chalet school, and I couldn't survive without that. But in 1970-whatever-it-was, the chalet school looked infinitely more attractive than the school I was actually in, and I'm sure I wasn't alone in thinking that. One of the really quite clever things about the chalet school and Barbara is that it manages to combine a new beginning for Barbara and for the school itself in Switzerland with the familiar. Readers new to the series are, of course, sharing Barbara's experience of getting to know the chalet school, its characters and its funny little ways. Café and Kuchen, yum! Daily cold bath, yuck! But established readers probably picked the book up for the first time and were immediately thrilled to find that the very first character on the page is Beth Chester. Beth Chester, daughter of one of the original maids of La Rochelle, joined the chalet school in 1939, one of the first triumvirate with Daisy and Gwency, former head girl, I mean Beth Chester, on page one. I'm sure readers who were still a bit sad that Bride and Co had left at the end of the previous term were sucked in straight away especially when Frieda von Arlen, a character who dates from the very first Chalet School book, arrived a few pages later. 
And Barbara herself isn't actually a new character to long-standing readers. She first appears as a baby in Janie Steps In, the final La Rochelle book, and has had a couple of passing references in the interim as Beth and Nancy's younger invalid sister. And here she is, at the chalet school at last, and she turns out to be a really nice girl, not a spoiled horror at all. Long-standing readers will also, I think, have been pleased to find plenty of staff and girls they recognised, and they were probably quite grateful, after Joey goes to the Oberland, the book immediately preceding Barbara, to get a break from Joey Maynard for a few weeks, while she's in quarantine. This brings me to the plot. It's not a complicated one. Barbara, a formerly delicate child, is joining the chalet school as a day girl, but this plan for a gentle introduction to school life is scuppered before she arrives, as she's supposed to be living with Joey Maynard next door to the school, but Joey's family has German measles. Her cousin Vi looks after her for the first few days, and this prompts jealousy in another girl, Mary Woodley, who would like to be friends with Vi herself. Mary plots to break up Vi and Barbara's friendship, but this is unsuccessful, so she gives up. There's a walk which requires a rescue from a snowstorm, a half-term trip to Bern, winter sporting, a party, and then the end of term nativity play. So it's all quite episodic, and that's fine. It's what EBD is good at, alongside creating characters who are alive and engaging. But I do find Mary Woodley's plot to break up Vi and Barbara's friendship absolutely baffling. Mary aims to achieve the breakup by getting another girl, Caroline, into trouble and putting Barbara into the frame for being the cause. Vi isn't particularly friendly with Caroline, so it would have made way more sense to get Vi into trouble and pin this on Barbara. And Mary's method is a bit strange too. Caroline has put her library book into her shoe locker, which is against the rules. Library books are supposed to go in the lockers in the common room, according to this book. Or the lockers in the form room, because you're allowed to read your library book if you finish your prep early. Or possibly the locker in your sleeping cubicle, because you can also read your library book if you wake up early. But they are absolutely not allowed in your shoe locker, so Caroline jams hers right at the back, where hopefully Matron won't find it. But Matron does find it because somebody, i.e. Mary, removes it from the locker and puts it on the floor in front of the locker. I'm not absolutely sure that the cloakroom floor is specifically forbidden as a location for library book storage, but I suppose Matron hauls Caroline in on a general charge of failing to treat a library book with due care and attention, so Caroline is in trouble. And because Barbara had said to her, are you sure you ought to be breaking the rules by putting your library book in your shoe locker, this makes Barbara the prime suspect for deliberately getting her into trouble. It all blows over thanks to Vi's intervention. Vi points out that she also knew that Caroline had put her library book in a forbidden locker. Therefore, Barbara wasn't the only person to know this. Therefore, and here the logic breaks down a bit, it's wrong to accuse Barbara of having hoiked the book out for Matey's attention. And Barbara then works out that it must have been Mary. But she doesn't say anything because she's a proper chalet schoolgirl who thinks about other people's feelings. And also because by this time, everyone has forgotten about the entire incident. In the hands of another author, or even in a different book by EBD, there would have been a concerted attempt to unmask the culprit, but here, no. It's an unsolved mystery, and nobody cares. Even Mary Woodley doesn't care. Her plot doesn't work, so she doesn't try again, she just sulks. EBD describes her at the outset as a dull girl, and she clearly has no gumption whatsoever. Interestingly, Mary Woodley is one of those minor characters who doesn't hang around for another dozen books, and then turn out to be a proper chalet school girl by the time she reaches the sixth form. At the start of the next book, Mary has left, and she disappears from the chalet canon without trace. There are relatively few characters who achieve this chalet oblivion. There's a bunch of characters who were in the school when it's on subrivals, and remain at what's known as the English branch, even though it is in Wales, but that's not quite the same as having a walk-on part and then simply disappearing. 
Of course, with EBD, a character who has managed to escape the Chalet-verse is never entirely safe, and the Chalet School and Barbara demonstrates this perfectly, to a lesser degree in Barbara herself, but far more importantly with the new maths mistress Nancy Wilmot. There's quite a big build-up to Nancy's arrival in the Chalet School and Barbara. Won't it be a bit of a shock to the girls, says somebody. To the older ones, responds Miss Annesley. Not many of the younger ones were around when she was here. No, Miss Annesley, none of the girls, older or younger, was at school in the Tyrol, which is when Nancy Wilmot left it after a chalet school career which was both short, she arrived from St Scholastica's, the other school at Tiansay, as a senior, and undistinguished. She made it to prefect, but as one of the ruck. As I found and read chalet school books which took me to the TNC era of the chalet school's history, I kept looking out for Nancy Wilmot, who's presented in Barbara as an old girl we should all know about, but she's very much a background character when she attends the chalet school as a girl. As a teacher, though, it's a completely different story. Nancy Wilmot is not only a good maths teacher from her very first lesson, she's also a natural leader, and she rises through the ranks of the staff to become acting head when Miss Annesley takes a sabbatical a few years later. So her arrival at the school in Barbara is a key moment, just not quite in the way EBD may have intended at the time. Quite early on in the book we get a prefects meeting and through this a glimpse into both the school's organisation and EBD's subsequent inability to keep track of it. The three lowest forms, lower fourth and the two upper fourths, all have prep in the afternoons. But there is an hour and a half in the evenings and Saturday morning, why? That's in hall and it includes the forms below upper 4B, so that's just the lower fourth, just one form. Why do they need to be in the hall? The way the prefects talk implies there are two lower fourth forms, but this isn't reflected in the trip to Roslane Alp, although it is in the arrangements for the first expedition of term. Anyway, the rest do prep in their own form rooms with the form prefect in charge. The concept of prep was a bit of a mystery to me when I first read Barbara. In those days, primary school children didn't have homework, so I was a bit befuddled by the idea of extra work outside lessons. But I had a clearer idea by the end of the book because, thanks to Sue Meadows staying over, we get a good description of the mechanics of prep. There are four subjects, with half an hour allowed for each, or a quarter of an hour if it's repetition, so prep is either two hours or an hour and three quarters, rather than the hour and a half. On the day of the play reading, the school stops work at 1500 for the play read-through, with early café and kuchen, but this is normally at 1600, so surely it should be a late café and kuchen, but maybe it's a very short play change prep then Arbendesson at 1830 and when Sue stays for prep it's in the form room. Con accompanies Sue to upper 4b before going on to her own form room so presumably running prep in hall has turned out to be unworkable but Julie is taking it. It's Monday so that at least is correct. EBD via Miss Annesley makes a big deal of using the 24-hour clock when the school is back on the continent. I mean a really big deal. And to be fair, in the UK, the 24-hour clock was not in general use at the time Barbara was published. Even railway timetables didn't adopt it until the 1960s. When the Chalice School was previously on the continent in Austria, the books used a mixture of the 24-hour clock and British Times, on at least one occasion referring to the steamer arriving at 18 o'clock, which just sounds plain wrong. But now in Switzerland it seems to be the 24-hour clock all the way. Miss Annesley, of course, slips up on the 24-hour clock in the run-up to the first school trip to Interlaken, we get a reasonable amount of tourism by proxy in Barbara, and although nowadays I tend to skip over these bits of the books, I was gripped by it all on my first read. All the Swiss history I know is thanks to EBD seeding it into the chalet school books. It's not very subtle in Barbara. Most of the trip to Unterlaken and Untersein seems to be Miss Dean setting out the history of Switzerland. There is further proxy tourism with the half-term trip to Bern, and this involves less history, 
and more seeing things, such as the term, clock tower, and the bear pit, where the girls give the bears buns, and Miss Wilmot treats the bears to condensed milk. The bear pit, home had I but known it to Mary Plain, is still there, but nowadays there is a bear park next to it, and there is no mention of feeding the bears buns or condensed milk in any online information. I don't think EBD explains to us that Byrne has a long-standing association with bears. It's what the city is named after. She does explain that the ogre fountain was erected to keep children away from a dangerous ditch, although this explanation for the child-eater fountain is not among those outlined on Wikipedia. The Cornhouse Keller restaurant, where the Chalice School contingent has lunch, still exists, although there is no mention on its website of the 1,000-gallon barrel, but a guidebook does refer to its 40,000-litre barrel. Lunch in Bern sounds splendid. I probably envisaged the thick vegetable soup as a variation on the Heinz vegetable soup we often had for Saturday lunch, and meringues with whipped cream and glacé cherries combined the best party foods. But cabbage, boiled with ham, smoked sausages, potatoes and carrot, was well outside my culinary experience. It sounds similar to the Bernays platter, sausages, smoked pork and other fine meats garnished with potatoes, sauerkraut and dried green beans, and the recipe I found last week did include carrot and did involve boiling everything up together. The trip to Bern also includes a tour of the Swiss Federal Parliament House, the Natural History Museum and some shopping before Café and Kuchen and then back to the Gurnitzplatz. Looking at it now, with the experience of having organised several trips for groups of girls myself, it seems an extraordinarily packed programme, even if the bears manage to lick up all the condensed milk in double-quick time. The girls don't leave the chalet school until ten to nine, they change trains at Interlaken and then they reach the clock tower just before it strikes eleven. This is just about doable, according to today's train timetables, and if Mittar Gesson was at 12.30, they would have had three, maybe three and a half hours available for sightseeing in the afternoon. But that's not a lot of time to have a guided tour of Parliament, and a look round a museum, and a peep at the shops. Getting a group of teenage girls on and off a tram takes time, and presumably they all needed the loo at some point. The key character misses the trip to Bern, thanks to a fall downstairs. I am, of course, talking about Mary Lou Trelawney, well known to existing readers and name-checked by Beth, who describes her as a nice kid, at the end of chapter two when she says goodbye to Barbara. And lo, it's Mary Lou who is talking at the start of chapter three, leading a discussion on the subject of the school's new uniform colours, gentian blue, which is apparently both vivid and glorious, with cream blouses because white would have made too startling a contrast. I have to say, as a parent, I would have been mightily annoyed about this. Not only have I got to buy a new tunic, blazer, hat, overcoat and evening dress, but we can't even keep using, or in the case of the younger sister, pass on, the previous blouses. So there was significant additional expense on top of all the extra outerwear needed in Switzerland. The school clearly takes outerwear seriously. Barbara has two hooks for her coats in the dormitory wardrobe, in addition to whatever hooks she has in the splashery. When the snow comes, the girls wear breeches, windbreakers, pullovers under the windbreakers, at least I knew what a pullover was, and socks over their stockings, and they bring hoods and shawls downstairs with them. A major uniform item at the chalet school is the velveteen evening frock. On first reading, I didn't understand about separate collars and cuffs for these frocks, but actually the idea seems quite a good one, as it means collars and cuffs, which get grubbier than the dress itself, can be laundered separately. This arrangement also allows the girls an element of individuality. Barbara refers to emirants having two collars with the same pattern, so clearly the collars and cuffs are not all identical. Maybe some girls opted for high neck collars and others chose lacy ones. The staff party was an event which enthralled me on my first reading. I mean, how great is this, a school where the staff throw a party for the pupils? The staff party is, of course, something entirely different from the staff evening, in which the prefects entertain the staff, 
sometimes with the rest of the school looking on, which we have had in other chalet school books. The highlight is the racing on mats. Matron starts the first race. One, two, three, four, off! I've never heard anybody start a race like that, ever. The incident depicted on the cover of all the paperback editions of Barbara is the Middles getting caught in a blizzard on the way back from the Roslyn Alp. I have to say this trip does seem a bit pointless. It's a 20-minute train journey, 10 minutes spent looking at souvenirs in a guest house, and then a two-hour walk back down the mountain. And it's a line-up in twos type walk, not even a ramble. The blizzard at least makes it something of an adventure, otherwise I think it would have been quite tedious. Snow arrives properly in Chapter 15, and in Chapter 16 we are introduced to the possibility of snow blindness and the need to wear coloured glasses. I never understood why wearing coloured glasses was so hilarious, but the internet tells me that sunglasses were associated primarily with pilots and movie stars until the mid-1960s, so I suppose they were, at the time, something out of the ordinary for the girls. The term ends with the nativity play, which has had several scenes cut, hurrah, and a cameo appearance from Lady Russell, the school's founder, which must have delighted long-standing fans. The book ends with Barbara saying what a smashing school it is, and she doesn't even mind slang fines, as long as she's at the chalet school. As a character, Barbara never again dominates the story. Mind you, she doesn't really dominate here, we just see everything through her eyes. But that's not unusual in chalet school books, and she does make regular appearances right through to her final year at the finishing branch. I always felt an attachment to Barbara. After all, we joined the chalet school series together, and was pleased when she popped up in subsequent books. And by the end of the book, we've not only learned about Barbara, we've also learned about the chalet school itself, its key characters, its traditions, its activities, its moral code. We can draw a rough plan of a cubicle and the furniture within it. We understand how prep and the prefect system work. We've seen the relationship between the school and Joey. We know that at the chalet school slang is forbidden, but there are excitements aplenty. We also know that EBD can sometimes get a little muddled in her enthusiasm to let her characters speak. As a reader, we are now equipped to read any other chalet school book and be able to get our bearings straight away. The Chalet School and Barbara did not inspire in me a desire to do lessons in other languages or try skiing or use the 24-hour clock, but it did inspire me to read the other Chalet School book on the third-year junior bookshelf, and from there I kept on reading them. So clearly, The Chalet School and Barbara makes an excellent starting point for those new to the series. It certainly did for me. You have been listening to Top Hole, written, researched and presented by Deborah Lofus, production and music by Kit Lofus. You can email us at topholepodcast at gmail.com. Next time, we'll be looking at the artwork of the third style Armada covers in an interview with the artist Gwyn Jones. Top Hole is a Lofus Towers production.